Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now, for this week's message. businessman in a lawsuit. He was worried about losing the case, so he goes to his senior partner, and he thought that it would be a good idea to send the judge a case of really expensive, fine Cuban cigars. When he mentioned this to the senior partner, he was horrified and explained that the judge is a very honorable man. If you do that, I guarantee you will lose the case. A few days later, the judge ruled in the young lawyer's favor and delivered a massive win for his career. Patting him on the back, the senior partner said, now, aren't you glad that you didn't send him those cigars? The the young lawyer said, well, I I actually sent them. I just included my opponent's business business card in the box. (laughs) I've got another good one. Because these ones are short. Sometimes I do longer ones. (laughs) It's the Super Bowl, and an excited man takes his seat. The stadium is packed, but he's surprised to see an empty seat right next to him. He turns to the man closest to him, and he says, who in the world would ever miss the Super Bowl? The man responds, well, that's that's actually my wife's seat. We've been to the last five Super Bowls together in a row, but sadly, she passed away. The other man says, that's terrible. I'm so sorry, but couldn't you have gotten another close family member to come with you? No, the man replies, they're all at the funeral. Yeah, I had to throw the Super Bowl one in there because I'm not actually, I'm, I'm going to be out of town during the Super Bowl, so uh, I think Shane's going to be preaching. He'll have to come up with a good Super Bowl joke. But, you know, it's interesting. I was writing this message. I was actually finishing up my message uh, earlier in the week on, on Tuesday. And, and for those of you guys who don't know, we're going through a series in Luke. Uh, we started that series uh, in December, and we're kind of right at this place where Jesus is getting baptized. I just think that it's so amazing because I did not plan this. We had our baptism uh, scheduled several months ago, and uh, you know we've we've been tracking through Luke, and it just so happens that I'm going to be preaching a message on the baptism of Christ the day that people get baptized. So it's just one of those things that uh, you know God is God is good. He knows He knows what He's doing. Um, but I am going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm going to be going a little bit out of order with some of our scripture readings. I hope you don't mind. But before we dive into them, let's just begin with a moment of prayer. Lord, we love you, God. We do. We're all here for for the same reason. We're here because we love you. We're here because we, we want to serve you. We want to live the way you want us to live. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, uh, just receive everything that you have to offer us here in this life, Lord. And so I pray uh, for all of us here that we would experience a touch from you today. 
that we would experience the Holy Spirit before we leave today. And for those who maybe don't know Christ, Lord, I pray that they would leave here uh, knowing you today, that they would leave here uh, embracing the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passages that we would be looking at uh, today, uh, or that we will be uh, shortly, are actually, they're in Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to that, or you can get your phone out or whatever. But we would be starting at verse 21, but I'm actually going to jump ahead. It's a little unorthodox, and I'll explain to you why. When we jump ahead, we're going to start at verse 23. So here's verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, okay? So, because I'm, I'm, I'm skipping these verses about Jesus getting baptized, because I'm going to talk about those near the end of the message, and it'll go uh, right into our message about baptism. But I'm also not going to read through the genealogy, because it's very lengthy, and out of respect for Jesus' ancestors and his lineage, I don't want to mispronounce half the names on there. Uh, plus, everyone here can read them. I'm sure you, some of you have read them before, at least skimmed them. And I want to tell you, most pastors uh, actually av- avoid preaching and talking about uh, this section of the genealogy. Mainly because this is one of the sections that a lot of people, a lot of skeptics, people who aren't Christians, they read the genealogy in Matthew, and then they read the genealogy in Luke, and they say, well, these are different. So this is proof that the Bible can't be true. This is proof that it's not the Word of God, right? And so a lot of pastors want to avoid giving ammunition to the skeptics, but I actually want to give and equip you guys with ammunition against the skeptics, because all you have to do is do a simple Google search or maybe a YouTube search, and you can watch probably 50 videos describing or answering some of these questions. And I'm going to talk to you about the differences in the narratives, but I want to tell you, it's okay to ask questions. In fact, I believe the Lord encourages us to ask questions, because if we ask ourselves these questions, we are then equipped better for, for the attacks of the enemy. We're equipped better for the questions of the skeptics, right? So here's some of the difference in the narratives. First of all, Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy, whereas Luke puts it in here in chapter 3. Matthew also begins with Abraham, while Luke begins with Joseph, meaning that they sort of go in reverse order, right? So in Luke, he starts with Joseph, and he goes backwards in time all the way, uh, actually, past Abraham and goes all the way back to Adam and then God, whereas Matthew begins with Abraham and then goes all the way down sort of chronologically in order to Joseph. Matthew also groups the names symmetrically. Well, Luke just simply lists them. But here's where the skeptics jump in. Both of the lists are identical from Abraham to King David, but then they're different. Well, what could possibly account for this? Both can't be true, right? In in fact, Matthew even includes the names of several women where Luke doesn't include any women. And they jump on this discrepancy. They say, you know, this can't possibly be the infallible word of God because both can't be true at the same time. But I want to tell you, before I give you the answer, so we'll give you the answer today, um, we don't serve an insecure God, Okay. We don't serve a God that doesn't have answers. In fact, 
we serve a God that has very clear, coherent, and logical answers. And there's few things more damaging to a new Christian than to just simply say to them, believe. They ask a question, well, was it, you know, was it a literal six-day creation, or was it you know, old earth, young earth? Was it, what about this discrepancy I'm reading in the Bible? Why do these things happen in the Bible? Oh, you just have to have faith. I, I hear that. I, skeptics come to me and they say, well, I was at Catholic school or whatever school, and they say, you know, I was just told that I have to believe. And what it was is probably the people weren't equipped to give them an answer, so they just brushed them off. You just have to believe. Everyone in here, if you're a Christian, you should know the answers to some of these questions. You should seek out the answers so that you're equipped when somebody comes to you, especially if it's a child or a new believer, and they ask you questions. You should be equipped to give an answer. And if you can't give an answer, you say, why don't we find the answer together? And you go through that process because we serve a God that has the answers. Now, of course, there's always going to exist a certain amount of mystery in the Scriptures. I've accepted that. I mean, that's part of what it means to believe Jesus on faith. You know, it's, it's not, if it was absolutely 100% clear, then everybody would be a Christian, and there also wouldn't be free will, right? So part of the reason that God does, is literally not constantly showing us himself in person all the time is because that is what faith means, is we have to believe on something that we can't prove, right? We have to believe a little bit on something that isn't as scientific or cut and dry as mathematics. <clears throat> so it's very important that we ask questions, but it's even more important that we seek out the answers. Because the skeptics know that there's answers, sort of like unconsciously or deep down inside. They know that there's answers, but they don't want to do the legwork to actually find the answers because they know that ultimately it's probably going to lead them to having to face the truth. But when you are put in a position to have a conversation with a skeptic, I would encourage you to make sure that you're equipped to, to tell them the truth. But here's the reason for the discrepancy. It's actually pretty simple. During this time period, um, especially in Judaism, the widow of a childless man could marry his brother. And the child of the second marriage could legally be considered the heir of the deceased man to perpetuate his lineage. Thus, the son could have been listed either as the natural son or the legal heir. And many people, in fact, there's extra-biblical resources that believe, if you look at the, the names, that Heli from the book of Luke and Jacob from the book of Matthew were half-brothers. One of them would have passed away, and the other one would have actually continued that lineage by having, a, by having a child. That was actually very, very common practice. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. So this isn't just something that somebody came up with. You see this throughout the Old Testament. It's talked about in multiple places. This was part of Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. So one of the lineages is the actual biological lineage, and the other one is the legal lineage. Pretty simple. It only takes about five seconds to look that up on Google, by the way. Which is why I want everybody to ask questions. Because you can literally, most of us, can literally pull out a phone and find the answer. <clears throat> now, the remaining scripture readings will be somewhat brief. But I felt as though, you know, there's only two verses in Luke. I think it's two, maybe three, in which they talk about the baptism of Jesus. But I thought it might be a useful exercise to read all of them. Right? So this is one of the events that is featured in all four Gospels. So 
I think that we get more information when we read them all side by side. We get a fuller picture of what's happening. So I'm going to read through Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, and I would encourage you to just follow along. By the way, this is a very useful exercise. Anytime you get to a passage in Scripture where you want more, like you're just, you know, I'm reading about Jesus healing this person, I'm reading about this story or this situation in the Bible, try to find it in multiple different Gospels. And put them side by side, and it'll give you, give you a little bit more of a more robust picture. Oh, so jumping ahead here. Differences in the narratives. I already talked about that. All right, Luke, chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You get the same narrative in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, now hold on to that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to come back to it. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and him I am well pleased. With him I am well pleased. See the same narrative in Mark chapter 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Last one, Gospel of John. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now you'll see in red I wrote some manuscripts say this is the Son of God. Uh, I, I do that sometimes for those of you guys who, who aren't familiar. I just want to kind of put that in there because actually I think it's the majority of manuscripts will say um, this is the Son of God. So here's a few important observations. I could be wrong about this. I, didn't, I, I tried to find extra sources to, to illuminate me on this. But I think this might be the only time when the entire Trinity is present in bodily, like, in, in not no, God the Father is in bodily form, but it's all in the same moment. Isn't that interesting? See, I could be wrong. Some of the scholars could correct me. I really tried to find this is the only time where all three are present at the same moment. By the way, it was an actual dove. Luke records that it was an actual dove that came down a bodily, uh, in bodily form. Although it is unclear, some, some people are writing that uh, only John or maybe only Jesus knew that it was actually a representation of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to come back to this phrase from Matthew. He records that Jesus says that he must be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. But what does that even mean? It's kind of a weird phrase to say. Well, it's actually an act of submission to God. And it's an act of submission to God's calling over Jesus' life. 
See, Jesus didn't begin his ministry until after he was baptized, after he submitted to God's plan for his life, and then he received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Thus, to submit our will to the Lord and to step into our calling is, is through the power of the Holy Spirit, is actually to fill, fulfill all righteousness in our own lives. Think about it. It's a symbolic act of receiving the righteousness of Christ. And this is actually what happens when we become Christians. I want to I tell you guys a little bit about, um, if you don't already know, many of you do, but when we get saved, now this could, this, this could be in, in the quietness of our own home, this could be somebody leading us to, to Christ and we're praying the sinner's prayer. When we get saved, what's happening, and this is a very real thing, What's happening is our old nature is being crucified on the cross with Christ. And in that same moment that we really truly believe upon the Lord, we are being created anew. We are being born again. And what happens is is our entire past, our whole sin, like everything that we've ever done, our entire sinful lives is, is gone. It's dead. It's, the Lord is no longer identifying us with our sin. The Lord is no longer seeing us as a sinner. What he sees us as, he sees us with the righteousness of Christ put on us. It's like this divine exchange, right? I exchange my sin, and, and it dies with Christ on the cross. I give, that's, that's the only thing that I have to offer. I give my sin. It dies with Christ on the cross. And in exchange, Jesus is giving me his righteousness, which means from now on, God the Father doesn't see me as a sinner. He sees me as a saint. Right? Now, for some of you guys, this may be a little bit of a strange teaching. I promise you I'm going to give you some scriptures to, to, you know, to chew on that, that actually support what I'm saying. The truth is, because I hear this a lot from Christians. I heard it three times from one person yesterday. Three times from one person. Oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner. We're all sinners. That's what she said. We're all sinners. No, no, no. That's, that's not the Bible I'm reading. I'm sorry. I have the righteousness of Christ on me. I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm a saint. When the God the Father, look, if God the Father says that I'm filled with Christ's righteousness, if God the Father says that I'm a saint, then I'm a saint. I don't care what kind of worldly idea or anything somebody you're saying that you're a sinner. You're not a sinner. If you're in Christ, if you've given your life over to the Lord, you're not a sinner. That's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we have the righteousness of Christ put on us. And so when Jesus says, I do this to, to fulfill all righteousness, it's because when we become Christians, we now have his righteousness put on us. And we ought to get baptized. So as we talk a little bit about baptism today, I want to keep in mind, it's not baptism that saves you. It's not baptism that, it's, it's baptism is an outward expression of what has already taken place when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But why was it important for Jesus to get baptized? Well, there's actually, you know, three reasons, probably more, but three I'm going to highlight. But before we talk about why Jesus got baptized, let's talk about why, why he didn't get baptized, right? So, First, Jesus did not get baptized to get into heaven. There are many denominations that believe that if you don't get baptized, even if you like get saved, you say the sinner prayers, if you don't get baptized, sorry, too bad, 
you're not getting into heaven. There's actually denominations that teach that that's the most important thing. And we know that's not true. For actually multiple reasons, but probably the easiest reason is the thief on the cross, right? Jesus, when he was crucified, he had two thieves on either side of him. And one of them said, this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Remember me when you go into paradise. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this day you will be into paradise. Did that man get baptized? No. No. So baptism is not required for salvation. He also did not get baptized for repentance of sins. Even though John the Baptist was baptizing people as a representation of their repentance, Jesus had no sins to repent of. So he didn't get baptized for repentance of sins. And we also don't baptize for the repentance of sins, which uh, if we did, that baptismal would never be empty. We would be like coming up here very frequently. That's just not the case. He also did not get baptized because somebody forced him to or he was manipulated into it. And Jesus is saying, well, you can't step into your ministry if you don't get baptized. No, that's not at all. And so in the same way, that's not why we baptize. Some people have been baptized before because of that very reason. And they've decided to actually get baptized now that they understand what it means. They've decided to get baptized again. But why was it important? Well, it was important for a few reasons. First of all, Jesus got baptized to identify himself with all of humanity. This is one of the main reasons why he came in in human form. It's one of the key elements of the incarnation. He came in the form of man because in becoming a man, he was able to take upon himself all of the sins of humanity. He came in the form of a man to model for all of us what the life of a man can be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he'll never ask us to do anything that he himself hasn't done. So he wants us to be baptized, and so he was obedient to that as well. The incarnation was a binding of all of humanity to God in a new covenant for those who choose to receive that union. And almost all of the things that he did on earth, by the way, were in some form a way, uh, you know, we're in some form a way of him identifying with humanity. All the things that we go through, he also went through. He also got baptized as as just an act of submission to the Father. Remember, as, as a result of him submitting to the Father, he received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He received his anointing to step into his ministry. That doesn't mean that he maybe didn't have communion with God prior to that. What it means is that he was now commissioned to step into the purpose of why he was here to begin with. And in much the same way, when we choose to get baptized, that happens. There's something about the act of submitting to the will of the Lord that allows us to now partner with the Holy Spirit to step into our calling, to step into an anointing and a calling that we didn't have before, that we weren't walking in before. He also did it simply to just testify about who he was. This is interesting. What you see is you see the Holy Spirit coming down and you see God the Father speaking. This is just another way that we see of Jesus testifying the reality that he was God. Like, you read throughout the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, when they ask him who he is during the trial, he says, I am. And he's not just saying, like, I am. He's repeating exactly what the burning bush was said to Moses. 
That's one of the reasons at that point they just ripped their clothes and they said, this is blasphemy, is because he was testifying that he is God. And this moment was a way for all of the world to see. Anybody who was present or anybody who heard about this, and as we read about this 2,000 years later, this is him saying, I am that I am. I am God. The Holy Spirit is testifying about who he is. Jesus is testifying about who he is. And God the Father is testifying about who he is. Prior to receiving Christ, even though many of us think that we might be living good lives, we even do some good things every now and then. The truth is that our life is living in rebellion to God before we submit to the will of Christ. And by getting baptized, we are publicly submitting to the will of the Lord. It's a public representation of what we've already done in private. And it isn't because baptism saves us, and baptism certainly doesn't wash away our sins. That's already been done. When you receive Christ, your sins are already washed away. Your new nature is born. Our old nature was so decrepit and so unworth repairing that he's not even trying to repair it anymore. It's gone. It's dead. I want you to really think about that. And if you want a full teaching on, on you know, this old nature versus new nature, I would encourage you to listen to our series in Romans, specifically 6, 7, and 8. We did last year. You can find it on podcast or on YouTube. But it, it's a much more robust teaching on the reality that occurs when we receive Christ. Our old nature is crucified on the cross, and our new nature is born. This is actually something that's very important for Christians to understand, and it's also a teaching that most Christians aren't receiving at, a, at, a, you know, at, at some places. Most Christians actually take a very narrow view of what it means to be a Christian, right? So they go through the words, right? They understand, right, that Jesus took their sins upon himself, and that in doing, he made a way for them to get into heaven, right? They got their fire insurance, they received Jesus. They got their fire insurance. I'm technically maybe saved, and now I'm going to go back to living in my old nature? Really? That's what a lot of Christians do. They come forward for an altar call. They receive Christ. They might go through a class, and then they get baptized, and then they show up for, you know, church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe they tithe a little bit here and there but they're missing the power that sets them free from sin. They're missing the reality that they actually can overcome sin. Because for so long in their lives, most Christians, they, they say they're Christian, they believe in, in Jesus, but they go through these cycles over and over, right? Where, they, where they're doing really good for a while, and then they slip into some kind of an old sin pattern. And then they repent and they're doing really good for a while, and then they slip into this old sin pattern. And over time, they just become so desensitized to it that they truly believe that they can't find freedom. They're missing a key element. The key element is that you're not supposed to be trying to find freedom on your own. You're supposed to be trying to find freedom partnered with the Holy Spirit and a biblical community. These things are inseparable. And Jesus, did, Jesus didn't just die on the cross so that you could get into heaven he died on the cross so that you could experience heaven here on earth. He died on the cross so that you could be set free from sin here on earth. It's not just someday when I get to heaven, I can experience sanctification. I'm going to be this holy angel playing a harp. No, he died so that you can be a holy angel playing a harp here on earth. <laughs> 
You can experience freedom now. You just have to partner with the Holy Spirit. You just have, and part of that's going to mean partnering with the church, of course. But that, but that can set you free. And so Jesus died on the cross for freedom so that we might be able to step into who we really are in Christ, our new nature. This means that you're dead to sin and alive to the Spirit. It means also that our community doesn't identify you with your sin anymore either. This is important because this is actually what the service is about today. You think that you came here to watch five people getting baptized, but the reality is is that you, as an audience member, are making a commitment as well. These five people have made a decision to follow Christ. Many of them made that decision months or even years ago. But before we begin to worship and invite them up and and go through the baptism, I want to invite you guys into a commitment. See, a baptism isn't a spectator sport. It's not a spectator event. We're not watching a football game here. That's not what's happening today. You came here in support, maybe. Well, good, because I'm going to call you to support them. That's what it means to sit in the audience of a baptism. For those who are getting baptized, it's an act of obedience to God and to His Word. It means that they're committing to becoming lifelong disciples of Christ, and they're committing to the process of sanctification, and that they're pursuing a personal relationship with Christ. It's also an act of courage. By the way, for many people 2,000 years ago, if you got baptized publicly, which is what it's supposed to be, it was a death sentence. Keep that in mind. During major persecutions in the Roman Empire and even with some of the, Jew, the Jews in their community, to be baptized publicly was a death sentence because only Christians did that. So it's an act of courage. It's a public testimony. But here's what it is for the audience. For you guys here, it's a commitment for you to begin to identify them by their new nature. You're committing to actually view them as saints, not sinners, because that's what Scripture teaches. That's, what, that's how God the Father sees them. I would much rather view somebody in line with how God sees them than how the world sees them. The world is still going to identify them with their mistakes. We don't do that. That's not what God is calling us to do. It also means that we're agreeing to raise them into their new nature because sometimes, like a new pair of shoes, they feel uncomfortable. Somebody becomes a Christian, they're walking around in their new clothes, their new pair of shoes, they feel weird. Sometimes they fall into their old habits. It's our job to restore them to their new nature. It's our job to see them as God sees them and to mentor them, disciple them, encourage them, especially in those moments when they don't see themselves the way that Christ sees them. It's easy to slip into. You make a mistake, you sin, you fall into an old sit pen or you go through that cycle. It's easy to see yourself by your old nature. But we as a community, we need to see them by who God says they are. We need to remind them, oh, that's just part of your old nature. That's not who you really are. Come on, let's, let's, let's do the you know, living by the Spirit thing. 
Let's rely on Christ. Let's go back to your new nature. Some of you may be thinking of this, identifying people as saints instead of sinners. That doesn't sound biblical. Well, let's read a little bit of Scripture today, shall we? I'm going to be jumping into 2 Corinthians. I'm just going to read it and maybe make a few comments as we go along. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These, by the way, this, these are the baptism verses. I pray that if you've ever been to a baptism, you've heard these verses, because this is the focus of what a baptism is. Starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Let's, one died for all, that's Christ, died for all, and that all died. That's our old nature, right? This is, he's very clearly talking about his old nature. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is the difference between living for the flesh and living for the spirit. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We regard no one from their sin nature, from the things in the past, from the things of their flesh nature. We regard one another. Well, there it is. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, a prototype, something that's never existed before. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God is commanding us. We, you guys, as the audience, you have the ministry of reconciliation, which means that it is your responsibility to restore these folks and to remind them of their new nature. That is your ministry. If you're a Christian, it says God committed to us this ministry. It is our responsibility as a biblical community to restore people back to their new nature in Christ and to see them as God sees them. That's what the ministry of reconciliation is. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is, our, this is what we're saying, supposed to say to each other. If we, fall, if we see somebody slipping into their old sinful nature, into those cycles, it's my job to say, therefore, be reconciled to God. Repent. Go back to your new nature. Walk in who you really are. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's who we are. That's who we are. We're the righteousness of Christ. That's your nature. That's who you are. And we ought to be walking in that. And we ought to be encouraging our brothers and sisters to be walking in that. They're not sinners. They're the righteousness of God. They're saints. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. 
And as we sing the first song, I'm going to ask that those who are getting baptized, if you need to change your clothes, change your clothes. I'm going to also slip out and do that. But for those in the audience, I want you to take a few moments and I want you to commit to these scriptures. I want you to commit to seeing each other as Christ sees us. Especially those who are getting baptized. That's what this is. A baptism is not something you watch. It's something that you as an audience member are actually committing to. You are committing to seeing these folks the way that God sees them. And then I want you to pray for them. As each person comes up, I'm going to give them, I'm going to introduce them, give them an opportunity to share a scripture or something they may want to share. I want you to pray for them. I want you to bless them. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.